Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Most Notorious, some of the most colorful and infamous gamblers of the Old West. Throughout her storied life, she had buried three husbands, won over a quarter of a million dollars in gambling, carried a thirty-eight pistol, owned a brothel, bootleg during Prohibition, killed a man, and was a convicted felon at 75. So I would call Pogorales one tough bird. Hello all and welcome to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Thank you for joining me. So I've had a number of questions asked to me by listeners over the course of the series. And so I thought it might be fun to answer one question at the beginning of each episode over the next few weeks. So let's just jump right in. This week's question is from one of my patrons, Betsy. She asked me, if you could go back in time to witness any moment in history, when would it be and what mystery would you like to solve? Well, that's actually an easy one for me, and I'm guessing it's not an answer you will expect. For years, I've been obsessed with the Ruth Munson murder case, Uh, It's not one that most people outside of a few history slash true crime buffs in Minnesota know much about, but this is a very brief summary of the case. On the morning of December 9th, 1937, a fire was reported at the abandoned Aberdeen Hotel, which sat at the intersection of Dayton Avenue and Virginia Street in the Cathedral Hill district of St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, the, the hotel is no longer there. It's a YWCA parking lot now. When, when firemen arrived that morning, about 7 a.m., they found the burned body of a 30-year-old waitress named Ruth Margaret Munson 
who happened to hail from Grantsburg, Wisconsin. Um, they destroyed a lot of the evidence when they turned on their hoses and the water froze. Um, there was a massive search for the killer uh, by the St. Paul Police Department with a lot of suspects to sort through, but ultimately no suspect was was seriously considered. I would like to go back to that cold Minnesota evening as she left the Ace Box Bar on University Avenue between 11 p.m. and midnight to make her way home. We don't know exactly how she did it, whether it was by streetcar um, and a walk past the hotel or whether someone had given her a ride. But she met her demise only two blocks west of her rooming house, which sat only a half a block away from St. Paul's Cathedral. Of course, I'd want to follow her, prevent her abduction, assuming it was an abduction, or if she was lured into the building for, for some strange reason, which I don't believe happened, of, of course I'd, I'd, I'd try to stop it from taking place. So it's either that one or prevent President Lincoln from being assassinated. <laughs> um, e- email me your answer to the question at rivenous at gmail.com and I'll select a couple of, of, of your answers and read them on a future episode. All right, on to the show. I am excited to announce the return of G.R. Williamson. He's an Old West author and historian who captured the imaginations of my listeners a couple of years ago when he shared stories from his book, Texas Pistoliers, The True Story of Ben Thompson and Kingfisher. So this time around, he is here to discuss his book, Notorious Gamblers of the Old West. Thank you for coming back. Yeah, I'm glad to be here, Eric, and it's fun to talk about uh, the gamblers of the Old West. Yes, it's fun to hear the stories. So what first got you interested in this subject matter? Well, Eric, uh, in doing my first original research on the Texas Pistoliers, um, Ben Thompson was a, a gambler, a gunfighter gambler. And so I did a lot of research on him to write the first book. And in so doing, I amassed a fairly large amount of information on frontier gambling. And from that, I extended it to learn more about uh, the characters that were the gamblers and the games that they played. And so I've written a number of books along that lines. And uh, it still remains my main focus of my writing. So I, I believe that you write that the first American gambling establishment operated in New Orleans back in the 1820s, right? That's correct. Yeah. Uh, gambling was an integral part of the American culture in the 1800s. And most of it started in New Orleans, where they had the casinos there, or they called them in those days resorts. And uh, so a lot of the players got their 
start there and a lot of the games got there got started there and then it progressed on and it went on into the uh, wild uh, kansas cattle towns the railheads and then when that finally played out it started working the silver and gold mines and that's where the gamblers took their their professional uh, life to uh, bear in mind that the life of a frontier gambler was that of a gypsy moving from town to town until the money played out and it was always one hotel room after another and usually by the time they were in their mid-50s the results of all of that caught up with them and a lot of them died penniless and battling multiple health problems so that that's how it started that's how it continued and it continued on into the turn of the century into the early 1900s and then after that things sort of played out uh, Pharaoh and Monty had been outlawed and uh, a lot of areas had uh, anti-gambling laws so that's where it usually wound up ending originally in the early tent saloons the most popular card game was Monty also called Spanish Monty or Mexican Monty because it was played with uh, a regular deck of cards but minus some of them so that it lined up with the uh, Spanish deck of cards which is a 42 card deck and it was played very rapidly it was very easy to understand once somebody walked up to the table and watched it and then later on when saloons actually got real gambling tables uh, Pharaoh took over so in the old west Pharaoh was the king and slightly behind it was Monty a lot of people confuse Monty with the shell game of three card Monty which is strictly a scam a sleight of hand scam so Monty was the real McCoy and it was still played quite a lot through the Southwest but Pharaoh was the king one of the early Pharaoh masters was a guy by the name of Charles Cora for a minute I couldn't remember his name Charles Cora and his life was a fascinating life but I think I'll stop answering the question at that point and let you, let you ask me follow-ups or another question well yeah I actually had written down Charles Cora on my list of people that I wanted to ask you about yeah uh, you know in large part because of that dark end that he met yeah he was um, probably one of the foremost of the original New Orleans gamblers and he worked his way through quite a lot of different gambling saloons and he wound up out in 
San Francisco. And he took with him his paramour and they lived together and she ran a bardello and he played the tables and he was a Pharaoh master. He made a lot of money playing Pharaoh. The two of them lived happily for a while. And then Cora managed to shoot a U.S. Marshal in a dispute. In the process, uh, he was uh, rounded up by a bunch of vigilantes and they eventually hung him from the yard arms of one of the municipal buildings of that day. So he ended up in a pretty bad, well, he hung, he wound up being hung and his wife, who was very belligerent, kept the fight going after that. And uh, she spent a lot of money trying to convict those that hung him, but eventually she wasn't able to do that. And they were buried together there in San Francisco. Do you recall uh, what what the dispute was with the U.S. Marshal? Yeah, it has a <laughs> kind of a ironic and funny uh, development. Cora and his paramour Bella was in a opera house watching uh, uh, something on the stage, and in the process, at some point in there, the audience sees Cora and they start saying praises to him. And a U.S. Marshal that was there with his wife took great displeasure in that. And he had some remarks to say. And in the end of it, Cora insulted the U.S. Marshal's wife. And from there, it became, it became a game of who got who first and eventually uh, Cora shot and killed the U.S. Marshal and from there he wound up being hung. Did that killing happen in the opera house or did they take it outside? No that transpired uh, days later and they met on the street or something like that, and both insulted each other, and they drew their firearms, and Cora killed him. So you mentioned Pharaoh. Could you give us the basics of the game, how it's played? It would be my pleasure. Like I said, Pharaoh was probably the most popular game of the Old West until the late 1800s, when poker became the most popular game. Pharaoh was played with a dealer's box that you shuffle the cards and put the cards in the dealer's box. The top of the dealer's box showed the cards face up so you could see a card that was showing. That was called the soda card and it was discarded. After it was discarded, the first card that appeared in the dealer's box was called the losing card. And if you had placed a bet 
on the the denomination, then you won your bet. If you bet on another another denomination, you lost your bet. Let me explain that you look in Pharaoh, you're playing on a, with a layout. And the layout had all the cards of a specific suit. Usually it was traditionally the spades and you had two rows of the cards. And then at the end on the right hand side, you had the seven of spades. So a person placing a bet could place their bet on any of the cards on the layout. Say for instance, they wanted to bet on the jack. And if they place their bet on the jack and the dealer's second card, the winning card was a jack, then you won the bet. It played, it paid out at one to one. And there's a lot of things involved in that. The true feral layout it consisted of the dealer who sat at a feral table with the dealing box. And to the right of that was his payout box that you could purchase as many chips as you wanted to and you paid him that amount of money, then they could use those chips to play with. When they left, they could uh, cash their chips in and get their money, whatever that amount of money was. And a feral bank usually had traditionally a bank of about $10,000. So if it reached a point where the dealer couldn't cover all of the bets, then the game was over. That term was called, the game was busted. And uh, it was, it's a little bit difficult. Oh, there was also another thing. There was a case keeper and it was a person who was running a card counting abacus that all the players could see which cards had been played. The person doing it was the case keeper and the apparatus he was using was called the case keeper. And he sat to the front of the dealer so that everybody could see what cards had played. And then usually there was a third person involved and he sat on a stool higher above the table. He was called the lookout and it was his job to spot cheating and make sure bets were correct and so forth. He also served as a bodyguard in case things got difficult. He usually had weapons to take care of the situation. The game was played rapidly. I mean, it was extremely fast and people that were illiterate people that didn't speak the language, could watch the play for a few minutes and then know how to play the game. So it was a very simple game to watch and learn. But in trying to describe it, it gets a little bit more difficult and everything. So that basically is the game of Pharaoh. 
Was that a soda card? S-O-D-A soda? The top card, when you first start the game, after the cards are shuffled, they're put into the dealer's box, and the face-up card, everybody can see what the face card is, you know, waiting there. That card is called the soda card which means it was a dead card. It, it, it didn't do anything. And then you slid the soda card out of the dealer's box. The first card showing was the losing card. The second card shown was the winning card. Uh, so, so with a steely-eyed lookout above, I would imagine that some of these gamblers had some pretty creative ways of cheating. Yes, sir, they did. Um, (laughs) Just bear in mind that quite a lot of the gambling in the Old West was crooked, braced, rigged, gaffed, so that the advantages were not with the better. In in, uh, Pharaoh, when you bought the dealer's uh, dealing box. You bought it from a supplier who said who sold it to you for twenty five dollars. So it was an inexpensive dealer's box. But if you were willing to pay two hundred and fifty dollars, you could get a special dealer's box, which could be rigged in a lot of different ways to cheat the players. So there was a lot of ga- uh, of cheating going on in all of the games. Uh, Monty was so easy to cheat at it because it was hand dealt and any good card mechanic can manipulate cards any way they want to. So anyway, it, a lot of the cheating was uh, a lot of gambling was cheating. The roulette wheels were all mostly were rigged and uh, the dice games could be manipulated. So there was a lot of cheating going on. One of the things they had that you saw a lot of times in windows was that it says something to the effect, all games are square here, meaning that they were all honest. And when you saw that sign, the first thing you should have recognized that cheating was going on in that saloon. If they had to tell you that they were honest games, the players basically didn't stand a chance if cheating was going on. And most of the gambling was cheating in there. Let me, uh, let me digress a little bit here. There were a couple of different categories of gamblers uh, there were the ones the so-called on the square or honest professional gamblers, which that kind of seems like a strange dichotomy. Other, and, and if, if you weren't one of those, then you were one of the others. And one of the others were known to be cheats, card sharps, and so forth. And then a third group, were the just absolute scam artists who ran shell games, three-card money, and that sort of thing. And 
uh, a lot of money was made with running uh, three card money. One of the foremost notorious riverboat gambler, George Duvall, worked with a, an accomplice called Canada Bill Jones, and they could fleece players quite well using their scam of, in the three card money scheme. And they made a lot of money doing that. The irony was that George Duvall playing straight poker, straight Pharaoh and playing him playing honestly, he was a very good gambler, but he made so much more money working three card money with Canada Bill Jones. Why was that? Why did he do better with him? Well, the two of them would approach a group of people, usually on riverboats, and they would, or train stations. And George Duvall was the roper. He would get people to come in and, and play three card money. And uh, Canada Bill Jones worked as the hand manipulator of the three cards. And he came across as a rube, a slightly, let's see, a slightly illiterate, bumbling buffoon. Uh, but like a sucker. A sucker, right. So he dealt the three card, but he was a sucker. And George Duvall got players to bet against him because this guy was so inept. But sure as shooting, they'd lose their money every time. We will be back with more of the Most Notorious podcast in just a moment. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? 
Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And we have returned. So the more scoundrelly, unscrupulous gamblers. What methods did they use to sway the odds in their favor? Most gamblers knew all the cheating tricks. Supposedly those that were honest gamblers did not use them, but that didn't keep them from having to know exactly what the gambling cheats were doing. So they knew all of that. And undoubtedly, at times, they crossed the line and started using some of those techniques, even though they were honest gamblers. One of the things that dealers did, especially when you were dealing 21 and some of the other hand-dealt cards, if you were, say, you are playing poker with a dealer, they would spend their off time in their hotel room sitting in front of a mirror with a table in front of them and they would be dealing cards and watching themselves deal and that's where they learned how to do all the card mechanics that are used in card dealing such as dealing from the bottom of the deck a stacked deck well, there were several different methods that they could use to manipulate cards in any way that they wanted to manipulate them. One of the things, the stacked deck, means that they're using a deck that they know the cards that are going to be coming up in the order in which they're coming. Also, that was also called in the OS as a stock, S-T-O-C-K-E-D, deck. And... A lot of times there would be a call for a new deck of cards to be used in the game. And the dealer would say, let me have a new deck of cards. And they would bring it to him and he would break the wrapper to the cards so that everybody knew that that deck was not stacked. But then he would proceed to use the stacked deck and deal the cards that he wanted to deal in the game. So you talked a bit about the life of a gambler, uh, that they went from town to town, hotel to hotel. I mean, it was a game that was played late at night, right? And I can only imagine how much sleeping in was going on. Yeah, games could last as long as as four o'clock in the morning. And uh, so you got to imagine um, a gambler 
sitting at a chair for six, eight hours or so gambling with some sandwiches and a small amount of whiskey. They didn't drink a lot of whiskey while they were playing. And then when they got through with all that and they collected their winnings, they would usually retire to their hotel room and sleep as long as they could sleep and then get up for a very voracious breakfast. And they wouldn't resume playing till later on that night. And uh, that typically would start at anywhere in the range of 9 o'clock to 10 o'clock and might last up to 4 a.m. in the morning. One of the things I especially enjoyed in reading your book is your detailed description of period saloons. And, and there are a lot of misconceptions, right? I know I have them from watching a lot of Westerns. Can you talk about what a typical saloon would have looked like in that era? You got to bear in mind, the early saloons were mainly just tent saloons with uh, hard packed dirt floors with a few boards strung over barrels or something. So the early gambling was done in a very crude manner with no frills. That's why Monty and Pharaoh were so popular. Later on, saloons became actually buildings. The usual layout in a gambling saloon was that you entered through the front door. Usually they had a two-door setup. You entered through the initial outer door, which was to keep people from looking in because women and children should not look inside a saloon. And then you, then you went through a second door into the saloon. There were saloons that had, the term is actually bat wing doors that actually had those, but they were in the minority. Majority of them had regular doors, sometime with ornate leaded glass plates in them, but they were usually regular doors, not bat wing doors. So television and movies and stuff have always shown when you went to a saloon, you push through the bat wing doors. And that is one of those Hollywood manifestations, I guess. Inside the saloon, usually to your right was the bar. And the more prominent saloons had a very long bar that had multiple barkeepers. And then opposite the bar on the left, there was a series of tables and chairs. Not too many because we didn't. We didn't want people sitting in chairs and whiling away their time. We wanted them at the bar drinking or we wanted them to go to the gambling tables. Some saloons layout had the gambling tables to the rear of the first floor and it could have pool tables. Uh, gambling tables, and uh, that's where the money 
was made in the gambling saloons. Other layouts included a two-story affair where the gambling concession was on the top floor and you had to take stairs to the gambling rooms. Bear in mind that saloons were owned by people, but they didn't usually own the gambling concession. A gambler or group of gamblers had to buy the gambling concessions for a particular saloon. And if it, if they played their cards right, the gambling concession made them a lot of money. But the saloon itself only got the rent of the building. You also write about Hell on Wheels towns in your book. What were Hell on Wheels towns and what kind of gambling establishments would have been found in towns like this? Yeah, Hell on Wheels. That occurred after the Civil War and you had a lot of uh, people that were looking for work after the Civil War and that provided a great opportunity for them. They were building a transcontinental railroad across the United States to link the East Coast with the West Coast. And uh, the way it did, uh, they started at a certain point and they laid track for some distance and there was a shanty town built around where they were laying the railroad tracks. And this is where the gambling saloons, the prostitution and um, getting the paychecks of the workers taken care of. Then after they'd laid enough track, they had to move to the next point and another shanty town was set up. And what they would do a lot of times is they would literally load the entire shanty town buildings onto the railroad cars and transfer them, transfer them to the next spot where the shanty town was put together. And they kept doing that until eventually they reached the point where the two railroads met in Utah. And then after that, Hell on Wheels disbanded. Interesting. So what were the biggest gambling towns in the Old West? Towns, okay. First of all, New Orleans was probably the prime. But then also, when the cattle town, uh, rail, cattle railhead towns in Kansas became a point where there was lots of money being transferred between hands. So they flocked to the Kansas cattle towns. Now, what a way it worked out is it, the, the shipping point would be in one particular town, say Abilene, and then that would play out after a period of time, and then they moved to another railhead town like Ellsworth. And then it went through nearly all of them until finally the cattle towns uh, started not being a profitable place 
to, to gamble. Then they migrated to the mining cap camps, silver and gold and copper. And they would go from one place that had lots of ore being processed. And when that ran out, they would move on to the next mining town. And then that kept on until finally they reached the West Coast and most of them wound up in San Francisco. And at that point, that's where most of them plied their trade. A lot of these gamblers were considered celebrities, right? Yes, that's very true. One of the things about gambling saloons, if you wanted to have a successful gambling saloon, it had to be in the right location. Following location, it had to have big name gamblers gambling there. And they would seek out the notable gamblers and have recruit them to come and play at their tables. And uh, it uh, was a common thing to call in gamblers like Bat Masterson, Wyatt Earp, Doc Holliday, Luke Sharp, um, Ben Thompson, to come and play in their saloons because people wanted to see the A-team of gamblers playing. And, and many of them wanted to play against them. They wanted to play against them, and yet they were known for being masters at the game and largely... Uh, players against them lost their money. So I suppose that the sting of losing your money was mitigated just a bit by the fact that you were rubbing elbows with a celebrity gambler and you would come out of it with a story to tell, right? To brag to your friends later on. I lost to Wyatt Earp. Yes, that's the truth. Uh, one of the things I talk about in some of my books is called Barroom Tales. It was consistent throughout the Old West. Men would stand at the bar drinking, and one would break forth with a barroom tale. Something like, I was there when Broken Nose Jack McCall shot and killed Wild Bill Hickok. I was there in the saloon. I saw it. I saw him kill him. Whether that was true or not, it was repeated a lot. And there were other episodes of I was there when somebody won a huge amount of money or I was there when there was a gunfight between the gambler and the player. So, Barroom tales uh, permeated the saloons of the Old West. That's very interesting. Yeah, so, so you have an impressive list of gamblers in your book. You, you mentioned some of the more popular ones, uh, Luke Short, Bat Masterson, Doc Holliday. But you also have a lot of lesser known and equally 
colorful characters. Correct. I wanted to try to give readers uh, some of the notorious at the time, but little has been written about them. Um, and I wanted to give them a flavor of some of the unknown by today's standards of the gamblers of the Old West. So who, in your estimation, was the best gambler in the Old West, the most successful? Let me think about that just a minute here. Sure, no problem. By successful, I I take it you're meaning made the most money. I guess it doesn't have to be, you know, the most money. Success can certainly be measured in other ways. Okay, I'm cogitating on that. Um, Well, you know, a lot of the famous gamblers were not necessarily that, made that much money. But there were some lesser known gamblers that did make uh, quite a sum of money. Uh, Just as an example, Dick Clark won a tremendous amount of money over his lifetime as a professional gambler. And once again, because of the hard life of a gypsy going from one hotel room to the next and the long hours of gambling, which were terrible on a man's health, they usually suffered from an assortment of maladies. The most common among those maladies was tuberculosis or called consumption at that time. Dick Clark had a very lucrative career as a professional gambler. At age 51, he decided to leave the life of gambling. He bought a very nice, um, expensive home. He married a 17-year-old girl, and he adopted a daughter. But by that time, his body was racked with tuberculosis, and he had resorted to large amount of laudanum and alcohol to alleviate the symptoms. And he was able to spend a few years in his fine home, and then his his uh, consumption grew to the point that he was having to take more uh, opium and more alcohol, that he became a total shell of himself, and his life was held in the balance. Finally, it, it was decided that he had to take a train to Chicago for more treatment. They made it about halfway to Chicago, and they had to stop and get off in a town and take him to a hotel. So two days later, he died. Once again, the life of a gypsy gambler dying in a hotel room. So 
Dick Clark was a good example. We will return after this brief break. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place, so we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist? Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. And we are back. Here's the question. Which gambler, in your opinion, was the most dangerous? Now, that one I think I can answer. And give me a little time to make sure. The most dangerous. The most dangerous. I'd have to say Ben Thompson. Ben Thompson... um, was a master pistol fighter and he killed a number of men men during his lifetime each of which he said were trying to kill him but he had the ability to line up somebody that he had a grudge against and start goating them into becoming belligerent 
eventually they would draw their weapon. But he was ready for that, and he usually shot them dead right there. There were other gamblers that were very proficient with uh, firearms and daggers. Daggers were uh, used a lot in gambling games, uh, especially when you were dealing 21 or some of the other games where you were dealing. And if a belligerent gambler who had drunk a lot of alcohol starts to go after the the dealer, a lot of times they had a hideout dagger in a leather pocket inside their coat and they could whip and be able to whip that dagger out in a hurry. And a lot of times there's recorded instances where the dealer stabbed the belligerent player in the chest or in the neck and promptly killed him. Wow. So your description of Dick Clark's ultimate fate, demise, it might remind some listeners of Val Kilmer's portrayal of Doc Holliday in the movie Tombstone. Uh, would you agree? Um, I loved it. I thought Val Kilmer portrayed the most accurate description of the tuberculin scoundrel that he was in all of his decadence and everything. And I think he really did a good job. So I would, he is the best of the Doc Holidays. But let me comment a little bit about the movie itself. The movie itself was one of those 60-40 routines. Uh, About 40% of it was true to actual events of that, of the shootout at the OK Corral. But about 60% of it was Hollywood designed to tell the story in a certain dramatic way. Saying that, it remains one of my most favorite Old West movies. That, along with The Unforgiven with uh, Clint Eastwood. And let me make a... um, plug for one of the other actors and at the moment I can't think of his name but he was the actor that played Curly Bill. Oh, uh, Powers Booth. I'm sorry? Powers Booth. Correct. That is him. He did a fantastic job in there. Especially when he's been in an opium den and he steps out onto the street and he says I feel swell. And at that point, he has a confrontation with whom? I'm trying to remember now. Yes, yes, it's 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 the sheriff that he killed, um, Fred. Ah, something. Yeah, <laughs> the, the older gentleman yeah. with the white and beard. And so, the, and the show the sheriff asks him for his pistols, and he hands them to him and does what's called the barter roll and reverses him and shoots and kills him there in the street. Yeah, that's a that's a great scene. Oh, I totally agree. Um, so, so you do have a chapter in your book called 
the Petticoat Dealers, which is really fascinating. It's fun to read about the women who made their livings as gamblers. Yeah, uh, I found that fascinating. I cover, I think, four in the book, uh, two the most prominent, and one that you've never heard of called La Tulis. And she was a uh, a 21 dealer, dealing the game of 21. Uh, she had a Sala, S-A-L-A, uh, or, which was a gambling saloon. And she was a master at 21. And La Tulis won a bunch of money during her lifetime. She was also involved in political plots and so forth. So she was a fascinating character. But the two most notorious of the petticoat dealers, the ones that I was most interested in, Lottie Denno and uh, Alice Ivers, Poker Alice. Lottie Denno was a buxom beauty and she was very mysterious. Uh, Throughout her career as a gambler, you never knew her correct name. She adopted several aliases. The one that stuck the most was Lottie Denno. And there's a story behind that about a gambler that she cleaned him out at the table and he said, Lottie, you've taken all my dinero. And from that came Lottie Denno. And that was what she used for most of her gambling career. She um, started out from a prominent family and then later on she took up gambling and was a master at it. She traveled throughout the West in all the major gambling towns following the gypsy route of the gamblers. And she wound up finally in Silverton, Colorado, where she married her paramour, who was a gambler that was that had ran from the law for killing somebody. They got married there, and then they moved to Deming, New Mexico, under new names. Lottie took her original name, and her husband maintained his alias. They became prominent figures in the community, and uh, Lottie established a church there, and she attended all of the benevolent situations, and she was very well liked by the community. And her husband posed as a mining engineer, and he served on as a vice president on one of the banks there in Deming. At the time, no one knew that Lottie Dell and her husband had been professional gamblers all their life. They just saw them as people with money and with um, position. They were well-liked into the community well-liked in the community, and they were invited to all kinds of special occasions there in Deming. 
But when both of them finally died, they were buried there and their tombstones had their correct legal names, not their aliases. And so all of Lottie Denno's life, she had been a very mysterious person. But she died. Oh, she was one of the few Hellcat, Hellcats that died prosperous and uh, well-liked. Hellcat was a term that was used for female gambling dealers. And she was one of the few that made it out with grace and dignity. The other one that to me was fascinating was Alice Ivers known as Poker Alice. She starts out, she was born in England, then the family moved to Colorado where she married a mining engineer. She followed him into the gambling saloons and learned how to gamble, watching him play. He died in a mining accident, so she was left without any support. So she started gambling on her own and she became quite good at it and poker alice went on to be at most of the hot spots of the old west she was in creed colorado when she was working for charles howard who was running a a gambling and dance hall there and in through the saloon doors came two men with uh, 10 gauge shotguns and they cut him in half. He was the dirty little coward that shot Mr. Howard, Jesse James, and they had come to take him out and they did. She was working there when that happened. And she went on to being uh, throughout her life, being in a lot of those situations. So she went on gambling and so forth and was very uh, proficient. She became known for being one of the better poker players. And as she aged, uh, she became a whiskey swilling cigar smoking gambler who still drew crowds around her. And yet as she aged, she went into owning a bordello and later on in life, uh, while she was running a bordello, uh, the soldiers came to her house of business and wanted to be admitted in for the pleasures of the women that lived there. And it was on a Sunday. And strangely enough, she did not run her bordello on Sundays. And she hollered at them and said, no, go away. Well, one of the soldiers stepped up and banged on her door. She took out a rifle and shot him through the door and killing him. And so there was, she was in one lawsuit after another. And eventually, at age 75, sent to prison. But before she was sent to prison, the governor of the state decided that would not be a good thing.
that was the South Dakota governor. And so he pardoned her, telling her, don't do any more of that. And so two years later, after her pardon, and she's quite old now, she became seriously ill. And the doctors that examiners told her that she had, they were going to have to remove her gallbladder. But when they warned her, that her age, her chances were not favorable. She was reported to have said, cut away. I've faced big odds before. And then on February the 27th, 1930, she bucked the big odds and lost. So she died and she was buried at a, in uh, Sturgis, South Dakota. Throughout her storied life, she had buried three husbands, won over a quarter of a million dollars in gambling, carried a thirty-eight pistol, owned a brothel, bootlegged during prohibition, killed a man, and was a convicted felon at 75. So I would call Pogorales one tough bird. <laughs> I have to say that was very pious of her to pause her prostitution business on Sunday. Yeah, she she had a lot of quirks, and that was one of them. And uh, she was faithful to all her husbands, but in the end, they all wound up dying, not you know by natural causes. And so she was a there was she was a multifaceted character. Right. So I know you have a, a very special fondness for Ben Thompson, but as you put this book together, was there a character you just couldn't get enough of that, that you had a, a particular joy in researching and writing about? Gosh, that's hard to, that's hard to answer. Um, I think it has to be Ben Thompson. I think it has to be Ben Thompson because I did so much research on him, uh, read everything I could find on him, books, magazines, uh, newspapers, trial proceedings, and all of that. And so I would think that Ben Thompson probably was my most interesting person that I found to write about. As an aside, I got a chance to see a roulette table from Ben Thompson's Iron Front Saloon. It was a roulette table that he used there. I got to see it in person while I was visiting one of his descendants. And it was interesting to see it and see the layout and and understand that probably it had been rigged. Um, and there's lots of way that's done. Unfortunately, a couple of years later, the home in which that roulette table was displayed burned down in a massive um, forest fire down in East Texas. 
so it no longer exists. But I got to see it live before it perished. But I got to see a lot of other things involving Ben Thompson. Uh, I visited his gravesite there in in Austin, and it's a real interesting thing if people ever want to go to that Oakwood Cemetery and look for Ben Thompson's tombstone. It stands by itself. There's no other tombstone within 12, 15 feet. It's all by itself, standing under a very large oak tree. The day I visited and shot pictures of it, there was um, a group of Texas blue bonnets around the gravesite. And uh, I found that rather ironic that beneath those beautiful blue bonnets lied the remains of one of the most notorious gamblers, in my opinion, of the Old West. Yeah, that, that's some really vivid imagery. Well, well, gosh, this has been a lot of fun. Is there a way for people to contact you to, to find out more about your work? Let me think just a second. I'm hesitating because I'm, I'm thinking about a, a direct email to me, and I think I will do that. I normally don't do that, but I, I will now. They can contact me using the email address of grwilliamson1943 at mail.com. Great. And your books are available online. They're available online. Uh, all of my books are available on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, and other retailers online. Well, perfect. Thank you for coming back again. I've enjoyed this a lot. Well, Eric, it's been a pleasure. Uh, I've really enjoyed this, and I look forward to it. One last thing. For your consideration in the future, one of the most notorious bank robbers in the United States was Willis Newton. I interviewed Willis Newton in 1979 when he was 90 years old. And he told me everything about his life. I, it, it was, I went there on a chilly March morning to his rundown house and had a tape recorder. And he just, I don't know how many hours we talked, but I was having to keep changing tapes and taking notes and so forth, but he laid it all out for me. He and his brothers robbed over 70 banks uh, during their career. And then they also robbed six trains. The last train robbery in 1924 was a train robbery outside of Roundout, Illinois, and they got away with $3.2 million. Now that's $3.2 million at that time period. I don't know what that translates today, but it was a lot of money. They got away with it, but 
one of his brothers got shot during the robbery, not by a police officer or a guard, but by, by one of the other gang members who was not part of the family. Uh, anyway, they had to rush the brother to Chicago to be attended by a physician who saved his life. But then that physician turned it over to the police and they were all arrested. They were tried and convicted. But because Willis Newton was such a good negotiator, he was able to get their sentence greatly reduced. And so they went to Leavenworth in 1924 and five years later they were all out of prison and the guy was a, was an outlaw to his very end and uh, when I interviewed him just shortly before he died he was still an unrepentant outlaw so anyway keep that in in your mind and maybe at the point in the future you might want to go with Willis Newton I would definitely love to have you back to talk about the Newton gang. Yeah, they're definitely a well-known bunch of outlaws. Yes, yeah. Movies have been made about them. You're right. Yeah, I'll be happy to talk to you in the future. That'd be excellent. Well, we'll stay in touch. And again, I appreciate your time so much. All right. Well, I'll bid you adieu and... Hope you have a good day. Yes, you as well. Again, I have been speaking to G.R. Williamson. His book is called Notorious Gamblers of the Old West. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis. And have a safe tomorrow. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed.